0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? Let's try that again. It's 1030, in case you forgot. What's up, church? How are you guys doing? Yeah, good to see you guys. Yeah. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. Um... We're kind of all over the place today. You guys don't know this. Pastor Sam, pray for him if you would. We, actually, we'll pray for him here in just, just a minute. Pastor Sam's teaching at a church in Wairika today. Pastor Mitch is teaching at a camp in Gilead today. So we're scattered all over the place today, which is a cool thing. Amen? So, um, Lord, we, just, we lift up Sam even right now, Lord, as he's preparing to share the word. And Mitch as well, that you would just empower them, Lord, to, to preach your gospel. And, and that, Lord, you would prepare the hearts and minds of those who would receive it and that you would just use them, that you would not make them look good, but, Father, that through them you would make yourself to look great. And I just pray, God, that they would glorify you that, and, and glorify you in that, and we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, a couple of announcements. Um, Bob and Mark, if you guys want to cruise on up. Um, first of all, uh, First Wednesday celebration was this week. How many of you guys give me an amen if you were at First Wednesday this week? Yeah, so um, I want to address something really quickly that it, that at first might have felt like a little bit of a, uh, but it was a really cool thing. Um, if you were there, you know. First of all, everything went great. We've got a little video. You guys can go ahead and play the video. Of some of the stuff that was going on. Just a great time of fellowship and worship first Wednesday night of every month, June, July, August. Um, through the summer, we do this. Um, some of you may have noticed, though, we, we were working with a new, um, a, a new food truck this year that came out and did the food. It's Curbside King, which does fantastic teriyaki. And did you guys get some of that peanut chicken? You know what I'm talking about on that, right? So that was awesome. Um, but you may have noticed the lines were a little long. As you might know, first of all, more people showed up than we thought, um, but second of all, it was, just, it was just a lot of people. They had never been there before, so they were, they were prepping early, but it was kind of hard to, to put all together, and so um, as a result, you guys, some of you, as you know, you stood in line for a little while to get food. Um, let me tell you, though, something awesome that came out of that. Um, we invited those guys kind of on purpose. Um, I met Will, who runs Curbside King, a couple months ago at a different thing, and, and to my knowledge... None of them, um, to my knowledge, are believers. And so we invited them on purpose. Like, man, why wouldn't we bring some people that don't know Jesus into this atmosphere and let them kind of see, right? Why wouldn't we do that opportunity? And so here's what was really cool. Um, Just a couple of weeks ago, they were at a local brewery, and they did a big country concert or something. There was like 400 people that were there. He said to me, he came up to me after the thing here the other night, he said, we had a longer food line for this than we've ever had before, and we outsold even that big concert that we did before. We just sold so much food, which that's awesome. We want it to be um, financially beneficial for them for sure, but more than that, he was just apologizing over and over. He was like, man, I've got some ideas on how we can cut the line length down next month, man, I'll work with you on that, but the one thing he, he said, man... The people here were so gracious and kind. They were coming around saying thank you after the fact. Like he saw, they saw you guys acting with patience in the way that you interacted with them. And let me tell you guys, that matters. Because we've been talking about this for weeks now. God takes his church and has called us to be different and to be holy so that we're set apart. So we stand out from the rest of the world. And so here's a guy and some people that they're serving people at breweries. They're serving people at all sorts of different things. And then they come to a church and they should experience something a little bit different. Amen. And they did. So that's just really, really cool. So I want to thank you guys for that. Thank you guys for, uh, for, for being patient in that. It's a great opportunity, and uh, just keep it up. We'll get those guys saved. Um, also, a um, couple other uh, announcements. Um, church at the Fair is coming up on July 16th. As you guys know, we are partnering with Medford Naz and doing a joint church service. At, oh, you got to be careful saying that in Oregon, don't you? Joint church service. Let's, <laughs> let's change that. <laughs> combined church service um, at the fairgrounds during the Jackson County Fair over at Lithia Amphitheater. Um, So that's going to be a great opportunity. And listen, there are... there's lots of places that we need help and volunteers that you can sign up for at the Connect Desk out there, including parking attendants, gate greeters, ushers, refreshments, Kids Bounce House, and more. So if you guys could start even now signing up, it's not a giant commitment. There's a volunteer training day that'll take place the morning before, so that's Saturday morning, and then we'll have church Sunday morning, and that's it. Really easy. You'll still be part of everything, we, we, um, but, but we need some help, so we need you guys to start signing up for that. And then... I'm a little prideful, I know, but here's the deal. So we're doing this with another church, and that means at some point, I have to come with my list, and Pastor Dale comes with his list. Don't send me with a short list, all right? I'm counting on you people. you got to make me look good here, all right? Just a little, just in this one place, all right? And if that's sinful, I'll repent. Um, <laughs> Also, Pastor's Coffee is right after this service. Once a month, um, the staff and I will meet over in the coffee uh, area on the way out. If you are new to Heritage or new-ish, it's just an opportunity where we can meet you, put faces to names, shake hands, um, where you can ask questions. And the goal being, we want to provide an opportunity whereby, if this is to be your church, how you can get grafted into Heritage. It'll only take a couple of minutes. Please meet us right after service in the coffee shop. And then finally... um, as you guys know, the leadership structure here at Heritage is made up of two elder boards. Um, one of the elder boards is the executive board, the governing board, as we call it. And those are, it's a group of seven men who, um, right now there's only six. We have an empty seat at the moment. But um, we, seven men who collectively, they make the decisions that affect, if you will, the business of or the administration of church. So they do everything from deciding payroll amounts to approving budgets to all of those sorts of decisions. Um, The other board that we have is called our shepherding board. And the shepherding elders, the shepherding board of elders, their job is to just care for the spiritual needs of the congregation um, here at Heritage. So, so they don't, we don't spend at shepherding elder meetings, we don't spend time talking too much about budgets, though they can have voice and opinion into things for sure. Um, the main priority when we get together is to study the word together, to pray together, and to talk strategically about how best we will serve the people of Heritage, and especially especially, especially the, um, the covenant members here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And so um, what's happened, though, is that as that board, which is about, I don't know, 17, 18, something like that, people, as our numbers grow, um, so does our need to have more shepherding elders because it's just more people um, for us to be able to take care of. And we don't want one guy who's got like 50 people that he's trying to take care of. We want to be able to serve you guys the best that we can. And so we've been looking at, and we will over the next several months even look at opportunities to add add uh, a few shepherding elders to the shepherding board um, here at Heritage. Two of those men have been standing here patiently while I run through all these long announcements today. Um, I have here, I want to introduce a couple of friends of mine to you that have already gone through the application process. They've been meeting with us for a while, met with us a couple of weeks ago to go through kind of the final application interview. Um, and we as a board have looked at and said, these men are men that we can put our hands behind. We can recognize both the calling of God in their life and the Character that these men have, as well as the fact that they are on board with the mission here at Heritage. And so we want to put these men up as candidates for shepherding elders here at the church. The reason we're doing it in this format. When a shepherding elder, or excuse me, um, yeah, the shepherding elders here are making a covenant specifically with the covenant members here at Heritage. You guys know this. If you read even your, your membership thing, there's, it's, it's an actual pledge whereby um, the elders at the church are making covenant with you to serve, to care, to love, to look out for, and to shepherd. And in the same way that in a wedding ceremony, you would have the husband and wife up together and you would say, before the congregation, you would say, If anyone sees any reason why these two should not be wed, right? Let me say the same thing. If anyone particularly anyone in general but especially covenant members sees any reason why these two men would not qualify or should not be serving in leadership positions here at Heritage we need to know about that and so we're putting these guys up before you and for 2 weeks if there's a reason for that that you have um if you would email us or contact us at the church office so we can talk with you and find out what's going on um we just want to make sure that our shepherding elder candidates have been presented before the church so that it's not just the leaders that are putting hands on and commissioning these men but it's that us, the church body, are commissioning them. Does that make sense, church? And so with that in mind, i got a couple of good friends here. This is Mark Keepus. Mark is an executive here with Safeway Albertsons here in town. And Mark got saved here at Heritage a few years ago. He's really involved in the uh, setup crews and helping with all those sorts of things. And then we have Bob Kearns here. Bob, uh, as you guys know, leads the Flipside of 50 group. Just In fact, just led a mission trip down to our mission base down in Carmen, Sudan, Mexico. So we got to hear great report from from that. And, um, and those guys are crazy active. Like, I don't know how Bob has time to do anything with all the things that that group's doing, but that's awesome. Um, but these two men... We believe that their character has been proven, that their calling has been proven, that their enthusiasm to serve the body of Christ has been proven. And so we're now bringing them before you guys as candidates to be shepherding elders here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. So um, if they make it through that two-week process, then they'll be back on stage here with us in a couple of weeks, and we'll lay hands on them and formally commission them as elders. Does that make sense, church? Everybody say amen. 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 So let's pray. God, we just present this, uh, these men before you and, and this process, our leadership in general, and ask God that you would just shepherd us and navigate things and just, um, Lord, that you would give us, your church, the ability, Lord, um, to shepherd your, your people to a better and better degree, that we would mimic the good shepherd, Jesus Christ that we would love one another, care for one another, that we'd walk in light and integrity. And I just pray, God, that even um, as these men and others are vetted, that you would just care for and love your church. And now, God, as we open up your word, we just pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us and teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. 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 Thanks, guys. You guys can go. The rest of you. The rest of you if you would grab your bibles turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians when you get to chapter 1 join me on your feet for the reading of God's word would you It's like Bible drill. He won right there that guy. And he teaches Bible at Cascade. So that's not fair. 1 <laughs> Thessalonians chapter 1 we're going to be looking at well the whole chapter verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, even as we stand now, Lord, with heads bowed, as we often pray, Lord, may that be the posture of our hearts as we approach your holy word. Lord, this is, we believe and know the true and living word of God who created heaven and earth come to man. So, Father, may you have your way with us. May your word accomplish its purpose in us and in your church. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. So last week, if you weren't with us, we started kind of our summer Bible study program. We're going to be going through the books of First and Second Thessalonians um, through this summer, ending on Labor Day weekend. And then that very next week, we're going to jump out of the epistles for a season, and we're going to start working through the book of Luke and look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm really, really excited about that. I love these letters, but sometimes it's good to go read a story. Amen? So we're excited to go and... Amen. Like, okay, good. now just making sure. And so I'm really excited to be able to do that. Um, Last week, if you weren't here, I do encourage you to go back and listen on our podcast or on our website because we really spent the entire time last week just looking at the background and the backdrop for this particular letter. Um, We talked about the people. We talked about the city of Thessalonica. We talked about the culture then, what Paul had went through. We went to Acts chapter 17 and we studied the story of how that church got planted and what all the things. that that they went through in all of that and how that affected the letter that is written here. Very important stuff. And, And the overall theme is given to us in Acts chapter 17 when someone who is accusatory against Paul wanting to get this ministry kicked out of town comes to the Roman elders or the officials in that city and says, this man speaks of another king, Jesus. And that's the theme of the book, really. This idea that Jesus Christ is king And specifically, as you'll see as we work our way through the book, that this king is coming again. Now it's a letter. It's written by a man named Paul. His original name, those of you may remember, his original name was Saul. He was a Israeli, a Pharisee, a religious leader, and not just a religious leader. He fancied himself the best of the best. Like he's the guy that knew everything, who kept the law perfectly. He was the prime example of what a religious leader should be. That's what he felt. And his name was Saul. That name actually means asked for, which is a pretty prideful name. I'm the one you're asking for. That's kind of what it seems to mean. But then Paul, who is trying to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth, including killing and arresting and imprisoning Christians, is on his way to a city to go arrest more Christians. He's got the letters of arrest in his hand, and he gets to a certain point on the road and has an encounter with the true and living living risen king Jesus Christ and Jesus interrupts him and changes him Paul gets saved and even his name is then changed from Paul or excuse me from Saul to Paul which is what we know him as and there's a significant change that takes place that's really represented there because he goes from the name asked for to the name Paul which means little And that really characterizes the way Paul was. He went from this man of power and authority who was so prideful and confident to a man who was just making himself smaller in every way. He preaches and and writes in letters, I am the chiefest of sinners. I am the smallest. I am the least. It's about Jesus. And this is what Paul's ministry is really marked by. Um, history or historians tell us that he was small in stature actually as well. Um, there's an ancient writing. Um, it's not a biblical writing, but it's, it seems to ring true. It seems to have an element of um, legitimacy to it. And it says this, that Paul was short, overweight, bow-legged, with meeting eyebrows. You know what that means, right? <laughs> eyebrows that meet. It's unibrow. That's Paul. Has a Unibrow who sometimes had the face of a man and sometimes had the face of an angel. Now, that seems to ring authentic. Because if you were just trying to mock him, you wouldn't say he had the face of an angel. And it's hard to imagine how you would say that description ever had the face of an angel. But at the same time, too, if you were trying to build him up, I don't think you'd point out his unibrow. You know what I mean? But be that as it may, whether he was small, really, in stature or not, he definitely had a big heart. Paul loves the churches he's writing. And that's not just like pastor speak or something you write on a card. Like he genuinely loves the churches. He'll tell them in letters like, um, my my heart goes to your, I'm I'm like your father, you're my spiritual sons. And he has, even in cities he spends very little time, he has these powerful bonds that take place between him and the people. Which helps us understand the situation Paul's in when he writes this. Because Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks, maybe a month at the most. The text tells us in Acts, when it's telling the story, that he spent three Sabbaths there. And he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jewish leaders. So he's only there for a really short period of time. And persecution gets so bad that they have to take him out of the city. And they take him to Berea. And then he makes his way to Athens. And now, as he's writing this, he ends up in Corinth. And so think about it from Paul's perspective. You deeply love the people that you're sharing the gospel with. You're in this city, but you're only there for three weeks. And then they're like, no, man, it's too hot here. You can't stay here. Yeah, Timothy can stay behind, but we got to get you out of here, man. They're going to come after you. And he just got run out of another town too, by the way. And so now he has to run for his life. And and he's got to be thinking, man, like, what? I, I just got started. I was there three weeks Like some of these people just got saved last week. I didn't get the opportunity to raise up elders. I didn't get the opportunity to build up this board. I didn't get the opportunity to do so many of the things I would like to do. And there's no Facebook. There's no Instagram so he can tell how they're doing. He's driven out of town and then he hears nothing. And so it's only a period of a few months. This is what's referred to as the earliest letter, the first letter of Paul that we have. He's still right in the thick of all these things that are going on. And he's in Corinth and he's worried about how these guys are going to go. Are they going to make it? I mean, like I was only there three weeks and persecution got so bad they had to run me out of town. Will that church even survive or have they already just squashed it completely at this point? And then Timothy shows up and he brings good news and he's like, Paul... They remember you, and they remember you fondly, which is probably important because they go through a lot of persecution. You could think, man, they probably think, "What was the deal with that guy? He came in, he stirred up our whole world, and he left, and now we're getting beaten on." It'd been better if he didn't even show. But they're like, no, he. They remember us, Paul. They remember you, and man, not only that. Listen, yeah, it's it's hot there, man. The persecution is growing. In fact, some have died, but Paul, they're flourishing, they're thriving. They're they're steadfast, they have hope, they have joy, they're doing well. In fact, their name's getting spread all over Macedonia already. You were only there three weeks, but God's still there. And he's doing some amazing things all over the place. And Paul, as he hears this, you just have to imagine he's just overcome with joy as he hears that, that this fruit is still growing. And So he sits down and he grabs a pen. And he begins to write to them. And so as you might imagine, he's going to start out by just saying, I am so thankful at the news that he receives back. Now I'll give you a clue too about Paul. One of the things, this little, little thing you can keep in mind in the back of your mind as you're reading some of Paul's letters, he tends to have a style. When, when Paul writes a letter, he does these introductions at the beginning. And in the introductions, he tends to give you a hint about what he's going to be talking about. He usually has introductions. In Galatians, he does it, which is awesome. Galatians, that church is so jacked up at that point. He writes, he's just like, me, Paul, an apostle, what are you doing? And he just goes straight to just chewing them out. It's really funny. But in all the others, there's this, this glowing, I'm praying, I'm so thankful, thankful, thankful. But in it, there's a clue of some of the things that he's going to talk about as the letter develops. And we're going to see this today. So Paul sits down and he begins to write and he's thankful. What is he thankful for? Verse 1, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So right out the gate, Paul gives three things that he's thankful for. Now let's take a look at these. The first one is your work of faith. Does that seem like a little bit of an oxymoron to anyone that's familiar with any of Paul's writings anywhere? I am thankful for your work of faith. Paul, I thought it's like faith without works. I thought we we're saved by faith, not of works. What, what do you mean now, you got, now you're combining the two? What do you mean by work of faith? Well, this could better be translated, the working of faith. And this is what this means. When this church came to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, they didn't just sign on to some philosophical set of beliefs. It's not just like I will adopt this method as this is how I shall live in the same way that we might, um, I don't know, adopt like this is the best way to build a house or this is the best way to build this or this is the best way to do that. And we adopt like our style or our method or our philosophy. No, no, no. When they came to faith in Jesus Christ, and as we're going to see as the text goes on, something happened to them. And what he's saying here, he's not saying, I'm thankful that you guys worked so hard at your faith. What he's saying in, I'm thankful at the working faith has done in you. It's the opposite way around. He's saying the faith that has saved them is alive. It's not just a vain philosophical set of beliefs. It's something real and tangible that has an effect. It takes dead men and brings them back to life, you understand. It's not just, well, we believe this and they believe this. No, there is a power that takes place that he's going to get to here soon. And so he's saying, not that I'm so thankful you guys worked really hard at your faith, but no, I am so thankful at the working of faith on your life. And then he says, the next one, your labor of love. Now at this point, he uses a different word. Labor, work, same kind of thing, different word. And here, he absolutely means effort. He absolutely means work. He means intense, sweat, intense, hard work. So he's saying to them, I'm so thankful for the outworking of faith in you and in how you have worked hard at love. The text is going to go on to point some of these things. uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, talks about how their love for one another is always increasing more and more and more. Um, you could even turn just to the right in First Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and more. And, and here, here's just the truth of it. It's hard to love one another. It's really hard to love people you have very little in common with. Remember, this is the city. It's a trade route. It's a major port. major highway goes through. It's got all sorts of different backgrounds. There's Jews. There's Greeks. There's Romans. There's Egyptians. There's all sorts of different people from all sorts of different places with all sorts of different backgrounds who have very little in common. And the honest truth is, human nature, birds of a feather, do tend to flock together. And so it takes work and effort to love someone who is nothing like you, especially when you come into Christian community and you start admitting and repenting of all your faults and errors and people start learning about those things. You're like, I didn't love him before and now I have reasons. But remember what he's talking about here. Um, Christian love is not an emoji. Christian love is not a feeling or an emotion. I mean... If that's what love really was, just think how flaky our relationships would be with people. I mean, here's the truth. Um, Anyone that's been married for more than, like, I don't know, probably a day and a half would know this. That, you know, some days emotionally we feel love for our spouse. And some days we want everyone on earth to leave us alone. Isn't that true? All the husbands right now, I ain't saying nothing right now. (laughs) If I say it's true, I'm going to have to explain that later. That's fine. You don't have to nod. I know you all said amen in your hearts. But that's the truth. If our love was determined solely by our emotions, just think how flaky relationships in marriage, or even between parent and child, or brother and sister, think how flaky they would be. They'd be all over the place. But this isn't the kind of love that's based on emotion. The model for this love is Jesus Christ on the cross. And think about it. Before Jesus went to the cross, what did his emotions, what did his feelings, what did that human part of Jesus want to do? He prayed, Lord, if there is any other way. In other words, I'm not really excited about doing this. I got apostles over here, most important hour of prayer ever in their life, and they can't stay awake for a minute. I got another apostle who's currently selling me out for money right now to make sure I get arrested. That dude right there is just such a blubbering fool. He's going to sell me out three times before the night's over, and all of them are going to scatter except John. And, and I'm going to go to the cross. Like, you don't think there was temptations on all those things? And at the very least, we know for a fact the human part of him was like, I don't want to do this. I'm about to experience the most incredible pain and the most incredible punishment and suffering the world has ever seen or the world ever will see and he said, i don't want to do that i'm not excited about going to the cross nevertheless not my will but thine and so jesus didn't allow what he felt like doing to govern what he does so his love for us and remember it also says greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friend so real christian love says I'm going to lay myself, my comfort, my own advantage down for the advantage of someone else. And the odds are this side of eternity, we're not always going to feel like that. We might do it. You might grow to the point that that becomes even more and more like second nature, but that is not in conjunction with natural flesh. It takes work to get to that point. Amen? That does not come naturally. That kind of love has to be practiced. That kind of love has to take effort. And he means that word when he says, labor. Church, labor to love one another. Labor to love other people. Take effort. And remember, they're in a place where persecution is growing out of control. They have every reason to say no. And yet they are laboring and becoming known for their love. Just as the Apostle John would write, they will know that you are Christians by your love one for another. And I'm telling you, church, in this post-Christian age, as it becomes harder and harder and harder to be Christian, like, you know, back in the day, in the Yellow Pages, young people ask your parents, but back in the day, in the Yellow Pages, you could take out an ad for your business and you'd put a fish logo on there, and that was a good business move that told people that they could trust you that that signaled you to other Christians hey hire me i'm a christian too it was a business pro in many places, to put a logo like that on your, on your ad or in the phone book or whatever the case may be. That's becoming less and less likely in a lot of different places. In some people's minds now, and this is growing in some places, that little fish symbol means there's no way I'm giving my money to that guy. That guy's an idiot, and he's just going to keep using that money to fund organizations that I'm against. And so it can start costing you, like it did these people, actually costing you to love Jesus. So will you continue to love? It'll take work. It'll take effort. It'll take something that we are growing in, loving one another, showing patience, not emotion, but action to physically and tangibly and real and genuinely love other people. So how do you do that? What would make you even want to do such a thing? Well, the next thing is steadfastness of hope. This translates literally endurance inspired by hope or active constancy in the face of extreme danger. In other words, I'm doing something and now danger is in the way, but I will not be moved. I'm going to keep going because there's something on the other side of that suffering that's worth more. Like, there's, I'm willing to endure this difficulty because it's worth it on the other end. Now, there are things that we will endure that I don't totally understand. And I look at it, and I'm like, that is so not worth it. Um, all you in-and-out people when they first came to town, for example, that got in lines it's fast food. I'm sorry. It's good. It's fast food. And I would see these lines and that poor person, you know, the line would go all the way out and they had that poor kid at the street that has to like direct traffic and keep telling people not to turn. Cause the line actually goes across that little, you know what I'm talking about? goes all the way up the mall lines all over the place for, for a $3 hamburger from a fast food joint. And I was like, but there's no line at McDonald's right there. <laughs> I know it's the best. It's still fast food. Like I would be like, I might wait this amount of time, that amount of time, not worth it, because I'm going to weigh it out. This is the time I have. This is what it would cost me to spend that much time doing this, and this is the benefit that I get from it. Eh, no, marathons, marathons. Look, I've run half marathon, right? I've done that, and I remember getting to the, ha- to the end of the half marathon just a couple years ago and, and stopping at the end, cross the finish line, and then thinking, you know, if this was a full marathon, I'd have to do that whole thing over again right now. Not worth it. <laughs> not worth it. And, and, and either way, because here's a funny thing. There were people at that race that were running full marathons too. And we would see the markers along the way as you're running. And I would see like 22 and I'd be like, not for me. And these people ran from Ashland. I ran from Phoenix. They ran from Ashland all the way to the fairgrounds over here finished and you know what they got they got little medals on cheap ribbons just like we did Theirs just had 26.2 instead of 13.1 on it so not worth it so not worth it so what are they putting their hope in because think about it this isn't just being tired for a day or not being able to walk for a month like i was this is like this is something significant because people are dying Their whole world has been turned upside down. What could possibly be so valuable that they've only known about for a couple of months, and yet it's worth it, that they would be steadfast? And as they watch their brothers and sisters go through persecution and die, they go, still not changing my mind, I'm in. As it's going to go on, it's the theme of the whole thing. There is another king, Jesus. He's going to finish up just to skip ahead in verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They know that there's a real king. They know that that king gave his life for them. And they know that that king is coming. And they know that on the day when the sky rips open and he appears again, the second coming of Jesus Christ, Every ounce of pain and every ounce of discomfort will be worth it. American Christians, we've got to learn this again. We worship comfort in this world, and it's going to get a lot more uncomfortable, most likely, for us to be Christian. And we've got to start setting our eyes on something much bigger than self, because self ain't enough to keep going. But Jesus is, the kingdom is, the descriptions of heaven. No pain, no shame, no disease, the presence of God there. Jesus Christ himself in the flesh standing in front of you and then hearing him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, worth it. And so they kept their eyes on that. And when all these different difficulties came, when things didn't go easy, when it looked like the church might be failing because how in the world do we have a future? Look what they're doing to us. They said, doesn't matter, worth it. And they were steadfast and immovable. That's what we've got to remember, church. There is another king. We don't live for the government of this world. We don't live for the pleasures of this world. We don't live for the prizes of this world. We live for King Jesus who's coming again. And our rewards on the other side of whatever transpires between now and then. And whatever happens, worth it. Amen? That's a great testimony right there. That's something, man, that we should aspire to. So how did they become that way in just such a short a time? And how did they, I mean, like I said, they were only there for months. They didn't go through inductive Bible studies, they any of that kind of stuff. As far as we can tell, like what were they even doing that whole time? How did it happen? Well, verse 4, Paul says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And I think it's worth making an important distinction here, in spite of, this is a controversial uh, uh, theological topic. Paul says, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you here's this is what he doesn't mean he doesn't mean man Thessalonians you guys you have such faith and such love and such hope and steadfastness of course God chose you that's why he chose you because you guys are amazing at this and he was like I want them that's not what that means it's a conclusion. It's a for we know. It's a these things, what Paul is saying, these things are results of the fact that you are loved by God and chosen by him. That's what this means. Chosen. Hmm. It's a uh, controversial word. If this isn't on your radar, just tune out for a minute if you want to because I don't want to alert you to a fight that really shouldn't even be a fight. But It's an argument. It's an argument over this. This idea of being chosen by God. The theological word here is election. And 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 the argument has been going on for many, 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 many years by people way smarter than all of us. And the two sides are that God has chosen us. And then others go, wait, it can't be our salvation can't be based on God's choice because that seems so cruel and random. That means that God chose me, but maybe he didn't choose my neighbor. And, and that means they never had a chance. And why would God do such a thing? And, and there's this fight that's been going on. Um, it gets labeled as the fight between Calvinism and Arminianism, or between Reformed theology and Arminianism, whatever you want to call it. It's been going on for a really, really long time. I, I don't want to camp out on this. We're not going to turn to Romans 9 and do a big study on all these kinds of things because it's not the point of the text. But we're not going to shy away from it either here's what i want you to understand from this this is what i want heritage to gain when we come across things like chosen and election let me say this there is no reason whatsoever that any of us should ever shy away from the truth that you were chosen by god in fact you should celebrate and be filled with awe and joy by that that should make you happy think about this You didn't just, like, become a Christian because God set up, like, here's how you become a Christian. And then one day God's in heaven and, like, wait, Jeff got in? Oh, man. All right. I guess he's on the team. Like, God stuck with me because I just made the minimum requirement? Like, that's not it at all. Like, God chose me. Does that carry? Those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a long time... Do you think about that a lot? Does that characterize the majority of your experience with Jesus? Because I'll tell you, the majority of my experience growing up as a Christian was, I'm not good enough. I keep blowing it. God's probably angry. He's, he's disappointed in me. I better remember all the sins that I committed today as I lay my head down in bed at night because if I was to die, I don't know what's going to happen. And it was Fear. But but God speaks to the Christians over and over, especially in the epistles letter, and he says, he chose you. That's biblical doctrine. If you want to say, but it makes me nervous because of where people take that and the fight and all this kind of stuff, don't throw away some of the most beautiful scriptures in all the Bible. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the glorious purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the, and there's that word again, beloved. This is a beautiful thing. You've been chosen. The the God who spoke Crater Lake or the God who speaks Mount Shasta or the moon and stars, the sun, the God who speaks all these things into existence, the God who rules over everything and holds everything together, chose you. And not as a group. I pick heritage. All right, let's see who I got. Like That's not what that means. He chose you. And all those times that we're so, like, man, I'm not good enough and I just keep failing. Am I ever going to get over this? Am I ever going to get it together? Am I ever going to be truly godly? Am I ever going to, am I ever going to, God knew all of that when he chose you. That's amazing. How many of you were the kid that got picked last on Little League all the time and you weren't even really picked. It was more like, all right, well, if you take that one, we'll take that one. That's not what happens here. God delights in you. He chose you. Now, I know. You go, but man, the inevitable conclusion to that, though, is that he chose me, and that's awesome, and I know I should rejoice in that, but that means what about my neighbor? Did he not pick him? I have good news. He chose you to take the gospel to your neighbor, and that's not a cop-out. He chose you. Celebrate that. Be in awe with that. And then carry that good news to your neighbor and tell him that there is forgiveness for his sins. That there is adoption waiting for him. How does that all play out? I don't know. The Bible makes it really clear that God chose us. It's, It's inarguable that we are chosen. But then also the Bible makes it really clear that those who reject Jesus Christ and end up in eternal punishment are there of their own responsibility because they rejected God. And you go, so which is it, Jeff? Is it that God picked us or is that we picked? How does that work? I, I don't know, but here, here's what I'll tell you. Here at Heritage, we feel no responsibility whatsoever to make that work out. I don't care. I'm just happy. And I don't think we're supposed to. Even Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is the text everybody goes to on this and builds their, their inarguable arguments, they would say, though they've been argued over for hundreds of years, Even at the end of that, Paul concludes by going, how amazing are the Lord's ways. His ways are past and beyond tracing out. In other words, we really don't have the ability here to understand how all of these things work. The end result of it, though, is two things. We should worship because of it, and we should share it with other people. That's the whole goal. The whole point is God, like God chose you. You understand that? God chose you. That's incredible. Worship because of that. And then go tell your neighbor he can be too. And so Paul says the reason that they're doing this, the reason they're like this is because they have been chosen and beloved by God. And also, by the way, there's something strategic that Paul's doing here. Remember, this church has only been around for a really short period of time. But Paul in this language is tying them into the redemptive history of all of God's people all the way back to Israel. Consider what Paul said to the people of Israel, his original chosen and beloved. Paul says this, or excuse me, not Paul, God says this in Deuteronomy verse, or chapter 7, verse 6 through 9. God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more in number than any people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. So Paul's using this language strategically. Remember, he came into the synagogue, so he was reasoning with Jews who had been following and studying the Old Testament for a really long time. He's also talking to people who are completely outside of Jewish covenants, who have viewed this lineage of faith as something that's part of a nationality that they're not tied to at all. And Paul uses this language to graft them into something that's been going for a really long time. He's telling the church, this isn't something new, guys. I know it's only three weeks or three months. But listen, this is what God's been doing since the beginning of time. And you're part of it. He chose you too. And just like God chose Israel and delivered them from the hand of that king Pharaoh, God chose you. And as he's going to say here in just a minute, and has delivered you from these other idols that you serve. God's doing something. He chose you. You have become an object of his love. You are God's beloved. But he's also tying them into something much more than just the nation of Israel. Because what happens when Jesus comes on the scene? Jesus comes to his baptism, the spirit descends on him, and the voice of God comes from above and says, this is my, what, beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It is not um, blasphemous to say that to those who now have faith in Jesus and have been adopted into the family of God, that God now says to you, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is not blasphemy. God delights in you. He desired you. He set his love on you. He chose you. That is the greatest news in the world. Amen? And that becomes the motivation and the reason that we can become people of faith, that we can become people of love, that we can become people who have steadfast hope, because that's amazing. Amen? Amen. So God chose them. And he changed them, and now they have faith, hope, and love. But how did that happen? Was that like a fantasy football draft that he just went through? Like, how does that actually take place? Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, sharing the gospel with the lost, and I talked about how we get instantly awkward when we tend to do that. Like, we can have friends that we know really, really well, and we can talk about. I don't know, I always end up going to fishing, I guess. Um, but we could be talking about fishing. Jeff. How do I catch fish on the rogue right now? Oh, I can tell you all you need to know. Right now, the salmon fly hatch is going on, so that's probably what you're going to want to do. Flows are pretty high right now, so if you've got a boat, be careful where you set anchor. If you're waiting, fish closer to the shore because the fish in a lot of places are getting driven to the banks by the high flows. Salmon flies on top, nymphs during the day. I can go on and on and on and on with all that kind of stuff. Jeff, how do I meet Jesus? Up, 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 up. Then the pressure kicks in because suddenly this is an important conversation, right? It's like, I have to get this right. I got to have all the answers. I got to be able to answer all their questions. I need to persuade them. I need to, this, this should take so much stress off of us. Paul says, we came and we shared the gospel. And where did the power come from? The Holy Spirit came alongside. It wasn't in them. Like church, we aren't the ones who save people we we don't have that responsibility. Billy Graham has never saved a person in his life. Unless he like unless you're talking maybe he rescued someone from a fire at some point or something. I don't, I don't know. Heimlich maneuver, I don't know. But but spiritually, Billy Graham has saved zero souls from hell. Zero. He's shared the gospel and the spirit of God has come alongside and God has saved people. But but it's not on us. It's not our responsibility. And we can freak out about that, like it's all on me. I gotta save them. I gotta change their mind right now. I gotta have all the answers. I gotta have all this figured out and all this stuff. And it's it's just not Matt Chandler. And I would love to do this sometime, maybe here. But um, Matt Chandler, the president of Acts Twenty Nine, the organization we're a part of, when they do baptisms, they have. Two different people give testimony for each person that gets baptized. One is the person who's getting saved. They tell the story of how they came to Christ. The other, they have the person who led them to Jesus actually share. And he said, one of the reasons I do this, it's good for our church to realize how every story seems incredibly awkward. They're like, I, I don't know. They asked me about Jesus. I, I said some Roman road thing. Next thing I knew they were crying. I couldn't figure that out. And all of a sudden, like, just th- that's kind of what happens. It's, it's the... The Trinity, really, there's a, there's a whole relationship even in the Trinity that actually saves souls. God the Father arranges it. He's the one that, before the time, that looks down it chooses. God arranges it. Jesus Christ is the one who acquires it. Jesus Christ acquires salvation for us because he's the one that paid the price for our sin on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who applies it. The Holy Spirit, you get you get that, all three A's? My Baptist grandfather's in heaven right now going... But that's true. It's the Holy Spirit that comes alongside and does that. We don't save anybody, but we speak the words. And you gotta speak the words. I mean, notice what Paul says when he tells this. He says, Our gospel came to you not only in word. So so word came. In fact, lots of words came. Paul's in the synagogue for three weeks reasoning with people over the gospel. So you gotta speak the word. But it wasn't just merely the word. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that came alongside. So we do have a role, church. And Paul would tell us and does, hey, have an answer ready. You need to understand the gospel. You need to be able to verbalize your faith in Jesus. But don't freak out thinking that it's all on you to get people saved. You just tell people the gospel. I'll take care of the rest. And that relieves burdens. Just speak the truth. Tell people who Jesus is. Tell them what he did for you. Let the Spirit come alongside. And sometimes you get to be there to see it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you come away from that going, well, I expected power, and I saw nothing, and that felt awkward, and now I don't even know if I should invite the guy to lunch tomorrow. He's probably laughing at me right now. Sometimes you might feel that way. I actually talked to two guys in the last two weeks that I had lunch with. Both guys got saved at Heritage. Both guys were actually former Catholics, got saved here at Heritage, and both of their testimonies were like, I, I can't really point to like that day when, boom, the sun came out and I started weeping and all of a sudden, you know, like doves were in the air and uh, I heard a choir of angels. Like, no, it's, That's actually not usually the way it is. Even when you have things like baptism calls and all that, the Holy Spirit's been working in people's lives most of the time long before they ever get to that point. But sometimes you get to see it. Sometimes you're the one that's there. But it doesn't matter. Our role is speak it. Say that with me. Speak it. Speak the gospel. And then trust and even pray that the Holy Spirit will come alongside as you do. And let God take care of that. He knows who he picked. Amen? But we speak it. And and again, just remember, our culture views us as a group of people who have ascribed to a certain philosophy in the same way that a Buddhist has ascribed to that philosophy. And we just believe different things. And sometimes we buy into that same thing. And church, it's not true. We didn't buy into a philosophy. We had the power of God change us. It's not just mere, okay, I believe that. It is that the power of God that rose Jesus from the dead came and changed us and brought life to our hearts. It's not just a set of beliefs that we have ascribed to. Amen, church? Don't buy into that argument. You're different. God changed you. You didn't just believe. God changed you. Amen? Then there's two other things that we want to take note of and we will be done. Verses 6 through 10. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And this is the key part. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us From the wrath to come. Two more really important characteristics of this Thessalonian church. One is they gained a completely new foundation for their entire lives. You know, the accusation against them, do you guys remember from last week and in the book of Acts? The accusation to the local officials was these people have come and turned the whole world upside down, as if they had just thrown everything into chaos. It's not true. The Christians weren't thrown into chaos. They were brought out of chaos and put on a firm and solid foundation. They were no longer serving these other gods that took them nowhere, disappointed them, and lied to them over and over. They now had placed their feet on the rock Jesus Christ and are destined towards the second thing being a new future. They have a new future. And we need to remember this, church. They were waiting for this, they didn't just believe in this Jesus. They didn't just have him as a new foundation, this Jesus, but they're waiting for this Jesus. And that's important. And I don't mean they were waiting like any day now kicking back in their barca loungers, sitting on their hands. That's not what that means. They anticipated this new king was coming, and because of that, it changed everything for them. Who they were, they were growing in love, and their reputation for love was spreading all over the place. They were being changed rapidly. They had a genuine desire to live a holy life because they knew their king was coming. Now, I don't want to get all guilt trip on you like your grandparents did, Especially grandma who said, is that what you want to be caught doing when Jesus comes back? But can I say, is that what you want to get caught doing when Jesus comes back? There's truth in that though, right? Do we want to get caught still messing around with the idols that Jesus died to save us from on the day that he splits the sky open and returns? The Bible talks about not being ashamed at his coming. He talks about being a good steward, a faithful steward who's being found about the things of the kingdom on the day that he comes. And so these people, in spite of the persecution coming against them, set their eyes past the persecution to the coming of Jesus Christ and said, We are waiting for him. And waiting didn't just mean sitting around waiting, it meant they were preparing. And how else were they preparing? They had growing love for one another. Church, any Christian that believes that Jesus is the King and that Jesus died, as he says here in the text, who has delivered us from the wrath to come, anyone who believes in that, you you have to be growing. You have to have an increasing burden in your heart for those that don't know Jesus. If you know that wrath is coming, how can you not? We don't want to talk about punishment. We don't want to talk about hell or damnation. Those are old school words. We don't talk about that anymore, but it's awfully clear in the Bible. And if we know that, how do we feel about those that are around us that that don't know Jesus? Do we have an increasing burden for the lost? There's a guy, he's a, a comedian, magician, ardent atheist. I mean, hardcore atheist. But I saw him in an interview one time that he said, listen, I have no respect for Christians that don't share their faith. If you believe that me not having Jesus means I'm going to burn in hell and you're not telling me, I have no respect for you. If you believe that, tell somebody. Warn them. Don't just walk around as if it doesn't matter. And church, it's real. On one hand, we are so blessed that jesus laid his life aside to save a wretch like me and a wretch like you aren't we and when we come in here as a church we worship because of that we sing praises to jesus because of that we are in love with him because he first loved us but that's got to make that transition into a deepening burden for those that don't know jesus because all that stuff that you claim he saved you from is still coming and, you know, Jesus, when, when, he, when he tells stories in the Bible, and we'll see this as we go through Luke, I think this is exact stories in Luke, as a matter of fact. Um, when he tells stories in Luke, he would always start them by um, a parable or a story is told. Or he'll, he'll say something at the beginning of the story to kind of alert his listeners or alert the readers that, that he's telling a story. But there's one story that he tells that he doesn't say that. He actually tells it in every way as if it's a true story that took place. As if it's fact, not parable or fable. And he tells a story about the rich man and Lazarus. You guys know that story, some of you? There was a rich man on earth. Interesting, by the way, one's name we have, one's name we don't. But there's a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor man, despised by everyone, dies and he's headed, you would say, to the pearly gates into Abraham's bosom, being welcomed into heaven, you would say. And then the other one is this rich man who had everything in life but had rejected and had even rejected and despised this man whom he knew. He knows him by name. But he had rejected him and rejected all of these things and he dies and he's headed towards hell. And as he's there, he speaks to Abraham because he can see he can see Lazarus as he's walking into heaven. And he realizes, he's like, can, can he get me water just to quench the heat? Can he? He's watching this stuff take place and it's clear from the responses that it's too late. It's too late. He's like, can I go back and tell my sons then because they don't believe I need to tell them. And he says, no, it's too late. If they didn't believe Abraham and the prophets, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, no, it's too late. But I heard a pastor teach on this, it might be 20 years ago, I've never forgotten it. It just always resonated with such heaviness. He said, if that's true, and, and we don't know, it, it reads as if it is. But imagine for a minute that that's true. That at some point, those who are going to hell can see those who are going to heaven. And imagine your neighbor, your coworker." your golf buddy, whatever the case may be, and you talked about everything under the sun with him. You talked about ball games. You talked about politics. You talked about everything under the sun, but you never talked about the gospel. And imagine him watching you. The most important conversation you could ever have with anyone that never took place, let none of us be guilty of that. And and I don't... Our hearts should be moved with love towards those that are lost. And as the church moves forward again, we're moving into this post-Christian age where, where things are really different. And much of the world, they view us and they know us. Whether it's right or not, whether this describes you or not, much of the world knows Christians or thinks of Christians by all the things that they're against. They're against homosexuality. They're against this. They're against this. They're against this. Political movements, whatever the case might be, that's what a lot of the world believes. Whether it's justified or not, that's inarguably what much of the world believes. But as we now move into this post-Christian era, if we as a church are going to grow in faith, hope, and love, and are going to set our sights on the return of the King, we've got to understand more than ever what the Apostle John said, that they will know that we are Christians by our love. We've got to start looking at people that don't believe in Jesus. Stop looking at them as enemies. Look at them as victims of the enemies. And we've got to start showing them love and compassion because one day if they don't have the gospel, they will die die. And it'll be too late. And if we really believe that this, wrath, that this wrath is coming, and if we're really growing in love, and if we're really imitating, Paul says, imitate me and the Lord. If we're really imitating the Lord who laid his life aside to, to the element of personal harm for the benefit of the lost, then we got to follow that path. That's just what we do. So may we grow in love and affection for the lost. May that be a burden. May we pray that God increases that burden in us. And we, may we have the guts to just speak the gospel and trust that the Holy Spirit's going to come alongside. Much better would it have been for the rich man and Lazarus to walk into heaven arm in arm. Amen? Will you stand with me, church? Father, thank you so much for your salvation. Thank you, Lord, for those of us that have put our faith in you. Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit has come alongside that gospel at some point in our life and you have saved us. Thank you. I pray, God, that we would live with the return of the king in mind. Desiring godliness in our life, but also, Lord, showing more and more love for one one another. Knowing, Lord, that there is wrath coming. You are coming with hope and victory for those who are yours, but you are coming with wrath for those that are not. And that should create sadness in us, Father. Lord, may that as well as your spirit empower us and give us the strength and the courage to share the gospel with the lost, to build relationship with sinners. May we, may this church, Lord, just as the Thessalonian church be known for its love spreading all around. I pray, God, that the same worship that we pour out for salvation you gave us would fuel effort, Lord, work on behalf of those who don't know you, Jesus. And I pray in this church, Lord, I pray for an influx of new believers to come through these doors. I pray, God, that there would be people who have never heard your gospel before, either coming into contact with us outside or coming here. Whatever the case, Lord, I pray you would surround us, Lord, with those who, just like these Thessalonian people, only months old in their faith. I pray for that, Lord. It's good for us to have that around. And I pray, God, that you would continue to grow your elect around the world. And We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 I love you guys. Remember, no Wednesday night service this week. We'll see you guys on Sunday morning. Share the gospel with someone that doesn't know Jesus. I love you guys. God bless.